morning again. If you would please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, and we'll be reading from verses 10 all the way to verse 17. Matthew chapter 21, verse 10 uh, through 17. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Verse 10, the word of the Lord says, When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna, the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you... Never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. And he then, uh, and he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he spent the night there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story, this um, narrative that, uh, for many of us, it's very uh, common. But we're confronted with a, a new image, per se, of Jesus one of uh, violence. And I pray now that uh, as we are to be imitators of Christ, that we will be able to apply this text appropriately to our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Uh, the form and the purpose of something usually go hand in hand. Um, depending on what uh, the purpose is of something, usually you can find... Uh, uh, the form goes hand in hand so that when you see something, you can say, oh, this is used for X, Y, Z. Um, for example, a little spoon uh, with a hole in the middle of it uh, is used to taking out olives from a bowl. It, it, you know, it, um, it, it's just used to pulling out olives. Um, the form and the purpose go hand in hand. Uh, Frank uh, Geary, who um, he uh, was the designer of the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao. Uh, if you've looked at the image, uh, the, the building from the outside, it kind of looks like the stainless steel type building, and there's all these curves, and it, it's, it's not just a straight building, uh, like the buildings around it, you know, with uh, right angles and so forth. Everything is curved on the outside. And, um, but something that's very interesting that uh, when they were interviewing him about designing this museum, uh, he said that he always, always, always starts with the, uh, the purpose of the rooms, the interior. He always starts with the interior, and he finds out from the customer, what is the purpose? What, what is this room going to be used for? Uh, is it going to be used for exhibits? Uh, okay, so they start designing a room for exhibits. Is it going to be for parties? Okay, this room is going to be. And depending on its purpose is how he began to design what the building is going to look like. Uh, and if you look from the outside, you would notice that the Guggenheim looks different. 
And, uh, and of course, you would say then, oh, it must be a museum. It must be an art museum. And, and you would be right. There's the purpose, the form and the purpose go hand in hand. Now, uh, as we looked at chapter 21, and we're going through this uh, text, uh, we have to note that uh, something very interesting is happening with the triumphal entry and kind of the development of the Passion Week of Jesus. Uh, from the narrative, in, starting in Matthew chapter 1, what we've seen is this uh, rather fast narrative that has happened. In fact, um, Chapter 1 jumps through centuries of genealogy, and uh, in just in one chapter you go from all the way from Abraham and David all the way to the person of Jesus Christ. It's just, just like that in one chapter. And then in chapter 2 you end up having this announcement that uh, uh, Mary is, is going to have this child, uh, and, uh, and then lo and behold, the baby is born, and uh, they find out that Herod wants to kill the baby, and so... Before you know it, they're already down in Egypt. Now, these are just miraculous things that are happening in the text. I mean, it's just incredible to see the, the narrative time, the narrative pace that is happening as the narrative develops. It, it just moves rather quickly, and then it, it jumps to them going back all the way up to Nazareth after they find out that Herod's no longer persecuting them, and he's dead. Uh, so they move all the way back up from Egypt, they make that trip. And so the pace is rather quickly, and then it jumps all the way to him being baptized by John. And then the, the rest of the chapters that we're seeing, he, he's been moving from one place to the other, basically up in the area of Galilee. And he moves across the Sea of Galilee and then moves back to the other side. He crosses the Jordan, goes back. He goes a little bit further north. He comes a little bit south. But all these things are just happening so quickly. In fact, in a chapter, he's moving geographically all over the place. Uh, but all of a sudden, now there, it comes almost to a screeching halt. I mean, we're going to start crawling as we move forward here. Because from chapter 21 all the way to chapter 28, we go from a Sunday to a Sunday, a, a week's time in all these chapters. And that's amazing considering how all the rest of Matthew is developed and it's just moving rather quickly. Here he kind of just slows down to focus in on this week. And as we see this, uh, it, it, some people like to do a harmony of the gospel. Grant Osborne has offered this kind of sequence of events starting from Friday. Friday, uh, he arrived in um, Bethany, and we can see that in John chapter uh, 12, verse 1. Then Saturday, uh, Mary anoints Jesus. You remember that time when they're sitting around the table and Mary comes with uh, uh, with a perfume and offers it on his feet and she's crying and she's weeping and she's cleaning his feet. And of course, uh, Judas, uh, Judas feels very, um, uh, he wonders if that was a wise investment to be using so much finances on Jesus' feet. I mean, there's all these poor people that you could have sold the perfume and you could have fed a bunch of people, uh, but he missed the point altogether. Then on Sunday is when Chapter 21 starts off, the triumphal entry. And it seems like uh, that evening he goes out to Bethany. Then Monday, there's the cleansing of the temple. Uh, and uh, Tuesday, he, there's the debate with the temple leaders in the Olivet Discourse. Wednesday is kind of a, uh, there's not a lot revealed about Wednesday, other than the fact that it's when Judas goes and he, he makes arrangements for the betrayal of Jesus. 
Thursday, there's the preparation for Passover, Matthew 26, 17 through 19. Uh, John chapter 13, verse uh, ch chapter 13, all the way to chapter 17, records the farewell discourse of Jesus. Uh, I mean, John just kind of goes to a complete halt and focuses in on this farewell uh, discourse that Jesus has with them. And in that discourse, he ends up uh, explaining about the Holy Spirit that would come. He would have to go. Also in this chapter is where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Uh, if you abide in me, uh, you will bear much fruit. And the husbandman, which is God, he's working continually so that you will produce fruit. Uh, also is the whole scene of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 30 through 46. And then Friday at midnight, they come and uh, Judas betrays Jesus. They arrest him. The crucifixion and all that happens from 9 to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Then there's the burial. The tomb is sealed with the guards. And then there's a silence, per se. So it's a, it's a busy week in the life of Jesus. Now, I don't really care much to do about... Uh, harmonies of Gospels, and the reason is because each writer you know, really purposes to, to explain something from his perspective. Uh, these are not just historical books. They, they record historically accurate, but they have a theological purpose. They're, they're persuading us to know something theologically and apply it theologically. So as he develops this, he's not just developing a narrative of sequence of events that happened in Jesus' life, because I'm sure we would all have different questions uh, that, that Matthew didn't reveal. But he has a theological purpose of revealing Jesus as the Christ. And uh, that's what he's doing here as, as we develop this. Now, what we're going to be looking at today is that disciples must zealously stand for God's purposes, engage others compassionately, and live biblically. That, that's what disciples must do. Disciples uh, they, they must zealously stand for God's purposes, engage others compassionately, and, and live biblically. Now, the first thing is to zealously stand for God's purpose. We see in verse 10, it says, uh, when he had entered Jerusalem. Now, why in the world is Jesus entering Jerusalem at this point? He's going with this whole crowd. I mean, before he had already talked about he has to go to Jerusalem, and then when he gets there, the scribes and the priests, they're going to accuse him. They're going to uh, crucify him, and then on the third day, he's going to raise up. But why is he going to Jerusalem at this time? If, if he knows this kind of sequence of events that's going to happen, why not just kind of, you know, slow down, let these days go by, let the celebrations go by, and then go at another time? And the reason he is going here is because he's going to go celebrate Passover. Now, what in the world is Passover? Well, we find out uh, Passover in Exodus chapter 12. Uh, you remember that uh, uh, God sent Moses to Pharaoh to tell uh, Pharaoh to let his people go. And uh, Pharaoh did not want to do that. He wanted to keep them as slaves. And so uh, God started revealing sign after sign, miraculous sign after sign, to cause Pharaoh to let the people go. And of course, in each of those situations, Pharaoh ended up hardening his heart more and more. It says God hardened his heart, he hardened his heart. And um, the last one was this one where God said that he's going to send uh, an angel, or he was going to go, and the, um, he was going to wipe out the firstborn. And uh, 
unless there was, uh, there was blood on the, on the door post uh, of the house. And so this is what they were going to do. On the first month, uh, and it wasn't really their first calendar month, but rather God decided to make this their first month because it has a theological purpose. It's the starting of a liberation that God did. Uh, and um, he was going to, on the 14th day, uh, so the, the first day of that month, they were supposed to take in this lamb, and they were going to keep it inside for 14 days. And then at midnight, they were going to kill the animal. They were going to roast it. Uh, it couldn't be boiled. It, it couldn't be sautéed. It had to be roasted with fire. And the whole animal had to be consumed that night. You know, they didn't have any leftovers. It wasn't like you could have um, uh, lamb sandwiches the next couple weeks. Nothing like that. You had to eat the whole thing that night. And, and what they were going to do is there were some families that were rather poor and they couldn't afford to have a lamb, so they would join with other families that did have a lamb. And all those that were inside of the household with the blood applied at the door, the angel would pass over and the firstborn would not die. They were, they were safe. And, and it started, uh, it, it's more than just God liberating uh, Israel from Egypt, it started this new dynamic relationship between God and Israel. We see later on in Exodus chapter 34, 23 through 25, that God commanded all the men, all the males of Israel, to appear three times in Jerusalem before the Lord. And they were supposed to go and celebrate three festivals, and this is one of the three. So Jesus, as a um, as a Jew that is obeying the law. Not, he did not come to break the law. He comes to fulfill the law, to, to do the law. So he goes, and as he goes, uh, this is why he's there at this time. He, he cannot go. It's not like he can say, ah, I'll celebrate Passover a week later. You know, I'll do it on my own time. He, that, that's not an option. He is going to obey the law of God, and he's going to go up at this time, and he's going to celebrate it. This is why they're there. And of course, Jerusalem would get flooded with people, flooded. There would be a, a huge increase of people as they came uh, from all over to celebrate Passover. Now, this is why they're in Jerusalem, as it says there in verse 10. It says, and then it says, all the city was stirred, saying, uh, who is this? Who is this? Now, we looked at this uh, question last week, and... Um, we, we notice that sometimes people answer this question incorrectly. And it's really important to have a correct understanding of who Jesus is. It makes all the difference, especially for eternity, uh, of if you understand who Jesus is correctly. Let's look at the reply of the people. It says the crowds were saying, so it's not that they just replied once, you know, uh, you, you kind of get almost if... Um, you, you, you can picture this, that there's like a, a choir kind of split in two, and one group is saying, who is he? And the other one's replying back, well, you know, kind of like, well, you can picture it. Uh, what they're saying is, he is uh, the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, what does it mean that he's this prophet? Uh, a prophet stood in the place uh, between God and the people. God would reveal a message to the prophet, and the prophet would declare it to the people. Now, specifically, uh, most of the time we, we think of prophets as always telling something in the future, but really the prophet's job was to call the people to repent, to turn back to God. And you can picture, uh, for example, Jonah. 
Jonah had this responsibility of, of going and, and uh, telling Nineveh to repent. And he said that if they didn't repent, there was going to be a destruction. That was the future event. But the point was not just to give a future event of something that was about to happen. The point was that they would need to uh, repent of their sin. And sure enough, they repented. The prophet's job is to go and proclaim God's message and cause the people to repent, to turn back to God. Now, Israel was anticipating a prophet, one like Moses, not just any prophet, but one like Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, uh, there was going to come one like Moses. And then at the end of Deuteronomy, it talks about that so far up to that point, no one had come who had been like Moses who had spoken to God face-to-face. So they're anticipating somebody who has been able to talk to God face-to-face. That's what they're looking for. So is Jesus a prophet? Oh, yes. Acts chapter 3, verse 22 through 24, you have this sermon of Peter, and as he's talking, he's describing Jesus, and he says that Jesus is the fulfillment of the second Moses. He is that, he's that prophet that Israel was anticipating. They're waiting for this, this man who's Jesus. But the thing is, is that there's a little bit of lack of clarity as they move forward. Is he a prophet? Yes. The the next part is from Nazareth in Galilee. How do we understand that preposition from? Uh, Where am I from? I was born in Florida. When I was three months old, I went to Venezuela. Um, My wife and I got married in North Carolina. I've been a missionary in Venezuela and Spain. Where am I from? I don't know where I'm from. Uh, if you're asking my birthplace, that's Florida. Uh, but I don't know how to answer that question. Uh, if you ask uh, people that uh, parents were in the military, and you say, where are you from? And they look at you, blank expression too. They're like, I don't know where I'm from. I know these bases, you know, uh, but I don't know where I'm from. But what does it mean that they're saying that he's from Nazareth? Yeah, this is what makes the waters a little bit murky, is that really he's from Bethlehem. And by identifying him as from Bethlehem, it would identify him with being the son of David, the king, the anointed one of God who was going to come and establish his kingdom. But this makes it a little bit murky. Did he live in Nazareth? Yeah, he did. But it kind of fails a little bit. And see, that's, that's the problem sometimes. There's individuals that have a little bit of correct information about who Jesus is, but they don't have the whole thing. And that's very unfortunate because there will be many who will spend eternity in hell because they had mostly good information, but they lacked certain aspects. Some will say that Jesus is a prophet, and they'll stop at a prophet. But he wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a good preacher. He wasn't just somebody who came and did some neat little things. He was the Savior. He came and died in your place, in my place. He took our sin upon him. And he offers his righteousness if you believe in his death, burial, resurrection in your place. He gives his righteousness. So that when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees Christ's righteousness. Holding him as just a prophet, it it, it misses the point. Holding him as a good teacher misses the point. He is the son of David, the one who can save. So they they make this little bit of a mistake. And now we see in verse 12 that there's this little bit of a, a 
chronological gap that happens. He's not misleading. Matthew's not trying to mislead. He's not saying that all these events took place on Sunday when he came in, but rather he's connecting these things together, uh, connecting the blind men being healed in Jericho with the fact that he's coming in on a donkey and, and then him coming and cleansing out the temple. He's connecting these events to point that he is the Messiah. He's not trying to confuse people on the sequence of events. He has a theological message that he is communicating. And so it says, and Jesus entered the temple. Now, what's the temple? What's this all about, about the temple? Uh, we see that um, David, in, in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, 1 through 7, uh, King David gets this idea of he wanting to, to make a temple, a house for God. And he, and he had this desire that he wanted to do this. And of course, uh, God confronts uh, David with this fact that he had never asked for a house. Uh, he, he had never said that. He said, Have I, did I tell the, your fathers as they walked through the wilderness that I wanted a house? No. He, he had made a tabernacle. He had a tabernacle, and he was, uh, he was satisfied with that. But David wanted to make a house, and, and of course, uh, God chuckled a little bit. He's like, what? What house are you going to make for me? I mean, I, I put my feet on the world. Well, what could you possibly make for me? And, he, there, and it's there in, in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 where he does this promise that he was going to establish the house of David forever. There was going to be a king that would sit on it forever. So here's this temple, and as we think about the temple, it's really this place that uh, supposed to be the place where God resides. Where, where he is, where uh, heavens is met on, on the earth, a, a, a holy place, and it's his house. So here's the place that is holy, separated, distinct, and its, its purpose is for God. It's set apart for God. And as, they, as he goes to the temple, he ends up seeing, to his surprise, um, there's people who are buying and selling, there's money changers, and those who are selling doves. When they came over for Passover, they had the responsibility to bring a sacrifice. And as people moved from different places to come for Passover, the, the, the roads were not nicely uh, paved roads where you could drive your truck and keep your animal nice and safe. Uh, you had to take your animal and as you're going along, it could happen, it could happen that your animal that left very nicely without a blemish from your home, something happened to it on the way there. That, that could happen. And then you get there, and this animal that you were about to sacrifice, that you had set apart for the Lord, now you can't do it, and then you have to figure out something else to do. So there was a range where you could have, uh, you could purchase an animal there. And of course, people came from different places, and they had different currencies, uh, but to give the, the offerings you know, to the temple, you had to exchange the money so that you could give the, the temple money. And so there was people that were exchanging. Now, when we look at this, there's something kind of interesting that happened. Around 30 AD, the high priest, uh, he, he decided to open a market. There was a market on the Mount of Olives where people would go, it was outside of Jerusalem, people could go there and they could buy an animal, and going from the Mountain of Olives to Jerusalem was nothing. 
Uh, they could keep the animal safe. But the high priest had this idea that uh, he would do a little competition, you know, a little capitalism. What if we establish our own market right here in the temple? We could get the priests to certify them. They could look them over. And uh, if they are all certified, then those can be sacrificed. And so sure enough, to do a little competition to the one on the mountain olives, they opened up this one in the temple. And you could go there. And, and of course, there's different um, things that were happening, different testimonies of, of historians. Uh, some historians say that the priest would, if you brought your own animal, they would look at it and say, uh, it's not good, you can't use this one. You'll have to buy one from us. And so they're basically uh, making it so that you couldn't bring your own animal. And, and they weren't just doing this uh, for the rich people. It said even for those selling doves. A dove was what the poor person could offer unto the Lord. It, if you were very, very, very poor, you would offer a dove. And here they're taking advantage of not just the rich, but also the poor. And specifically, it's taking advantage so that they can't approach God with a sacrifice for their sins. I mean, how depraved do you have to be to get in between the person and their Lord? I mean, that's messed up, but that's what they were doing. Now, as we see here in verse uh, 12, it says, Jesus entered in the temple and he drove out all who were buying and selling. He drove them out. I mean, can you imagine this? We usually picture Jesus kind of with this kind of um, kind of longish hair, you know, right to here, kind of blondish, blue eyes and the beard, you know, manicured up, and and uh, he's got the robes with the Birkenstocks. Have you seen that they came out with the rubber Birkenstocks this year? I think they're trying to make a thing, but I, I still don't think even rubber Birkenstocks are going to make it. But that's who we picture Jesus. I mean, we picture him like this, and, and of course with the children, and he's got his hands on their heads, and you know, he's just kind of walking around just like this. And this is just an image totally different. I mean, he's going in there and driving these people out. He's turning over tables. He's flipping them over. Can you imagine having all your money for exchange there, and somebody comes and throws it over. It's going all over the floor. You think the people got offended? Oh, yeah, they got offended. You think they got angry? Oh, yeah. I can believe that they definitely got angry. He, he says something very interesting in verse 13. He says, said to them, it is written. And now he's going to quote from Isaiah 56, verse 7, which contextually is the millennium, this time when God establishes his kingdom, the Davidic kingdom on the earth, and he rules for a thousand years. He, he mentions this context here. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. A prayer, a place where you can come and talk with God. A place of fellowship where you can have a, a, a talk, a relationship with God. But, what did they do? Made it into a robber's den. It's an interesting word, that word for robber's. Because it has this idea of um, not only somebody who comes and steals something, but also carries this idea of being a, a revolutionary, an insurrectionist. And it's interesting because they'll accuse Jesus of being a revolutionary, yet they hadn't considered their actions as being in rebellion against God. They cared more about what Rome thought than what God thought about. 
oh, it's so sad. But here he is, Jesus saying, this is what you're doing. Now, as we look at this, we can notice a couple of different things. The first is that Jesus comes in and cleaned house. I mean, he cleans house. And, and if you think about this a little bit, you, you might be tempted to be antagonistic against God. I mean, what if some guy came, maybe he had a little bit of hardness in his heart, maybe he was kind of struggling with the whole God and sacrifice thing, and, and here comes Jesus and knocks over their table. I mean, that might have turned him away from God. Shame on Jesus for doing that. It pushing him away from God. I mean, he probably went home and said, honey, I, I had all this money from exchanging, and, and this guy comes in, and if that's God, I don't want anything to do with him. Maybe what Jesus should have done is maybe entered a dialogue with him. Maybe started having some discussions, you know, is this right, what you're doing? I, I think it's a bit naughty. I really do. Let's consider this. Let's just take a break. Let's just have a break, and then we'll come back and think about it. Maybe a little time out. And maybe they would not have been offended, and then they would not have been turned away from God. But the funny thing is, the interesting thing here, is that while Jesus' actions are offensive, the blame is the people who are rebelling against God. Sometimes wolves come into the church dressed up as cutesy little lambs. They do. They come in, and, and they're wolves, and they want to take advantage of the sheep. And sometimes pastors or deacons or elders or Sunday school teachers will get a bad rap because they'll run the person off and say, they should, not, they should have loved that person. No, you don't. The, the blame is on the people who are rebelling against God, not on the one who does what's right. Jesus cast them out. You don't just hope that you can convert the wolf. Let's just be nice enough. Let's feed it grass and see if it converts into a... No! You cast it out. That's what he did. Who's to blame here? Not Jesus. If their hearts get hardened against God, it's not Jesus' fault. It's their fault for being rebellious against God. Now, not only does he clean house, but Jesus' house, this house, he points out that the purpose of it is not matching their form. God's purpose of that house does not match the form of what they're doing. That's to say, they're there to make some money. We can ensure you unblemished sheep, unblemished cows, bulls, pigeons, but it's going to make us a little bit of money. That was their form. But the purpose of this was different. God had it as a house of prayer, a place to have fellowship with God. It's important to look at God's purpose and to consider our form. Take church, for example. Is the purpose focused on me? Because just to be honest, I mean, uh, Sunday mornings don't really work for me. And really, around lunchtime, I'm already hungry. And afternoon, I'd like to have a nap. 
And then I got to get, I, I was, I was going to say I helped get the kids ready for school, but that would be lying. Um, I do something, right? I do something in the evenings. It'd be really nice if I just had a video that I could watch maybe on Monday or Tuesday while I'm driving to work. The purpose there is for me. Therefore, my form ends up being for me. Many individuals want to worship God on their own purpose. Whatever's convenient for them. And therefore, their form looks very unique. For each person, it does. They'll come in. Um, they'll come in late. They'll come in for, et cetera, one service. One service out of the year. Uh, Christmas. They'll come for another one for Easter. Of course, I don't do Easter sermons, so they're like, I'm not going to even come for that one. But it exposes the purpose of them. Their form exposes their purpose that they're not there to worship God. They're there to worship themselves. And therefore, they will do whatever is convenient for them. That's what they're doing. Their purpose is not to worship God. Their purpose is to make money. And therefore, their form matches their purpose. And Christ exposes that, that they're not there to worship God. Now, not only should we zealously stand for God's purposes, but we're supposed to engage others compassionately. Engage others compassionately. We see there in verse 14. It says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Can you imagine? Blind people <laughs> trying to get to Jesus. Like, get to Jesus. And he heals them. Lame people. I don't know how they're making it there. They're getting friends to bring them on cots or what. They're dragging themselves there. But they're making their way to Jesus. And he heals them. I mean, this is just an incredible amount of power to be able to be doing this. Jesus is doing these miracles in front of everybody. It's not like he's hiding out in some place you know, gets a guy that can't walk, and then, oh, I can walk, you know, a guy can't see, and then he, oh, I can see. In front of everybody, he's doing these miracles. He's engaging compassionately with them. But the thing to note here in this context is that it's Monday. And Wednesday, Judas is going to betray him. It's Monday, and he's healing people, and on Friday, they're going to crucify him. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, four days. You find out that in four days you're going to die. Do you look to engage people compassionately? Or do you try to knock out your bucket list? See how many things you can do. How many restaurants can you eat at in four days? How far can you travel around the globe in four days and see the sights? you got four days to live. Do you engage people compassionately or do you live for yourself Jesus is living for others it affects our our wallets when we live compassionately for others it affects our time almost almost would rather it affect my wallet than affect my time time is very precious and you can't ever get it back but to live compassionately for others involves your time your energies and that's what Jesus is doing the last thing is he lived biblically. We see there in um, verses 15 through 17. 
Jesus, uh, it says, verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the wonderful things are two things. Uh, I'm sorry. The chief priests are described as seeing, and they're seeing two things. First thing they're seeing is the wonderful things he did, and the second one is the children who are shouting about in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. So they're seeing a guy that's blind come up to Jesus, and all of a sudden he's seeing. They see a guy that's lame come to Jesus, and all of a sudden he's walking. They're, they're seeing this. It's not like they're hearing about it from somebody else. They are seeing this, and then they see children running around uh, screaming in the temple. Now, it's not an issue that they're screaming in the temple. Uh, there had been other celebrations over the course of history where people were yelling and praising the Lord in the temple. So it's not that they're yelling. It's what they're yelling. And they're yelling, Hosanna, to who? To a prophet from Galilee? No, no. Son of David. The children recognized who Jesus was when the crowd failed. They recognize, Hosanna, save us, son of David. That's what they're calling out for. And they see these two things. They see these wonderful works. They see these children shouting this out. And what does the verse say? They got down on their knees and they begged God for forgiveness. They repented in their heart and they tore their clothes. Right? That's what they did. They became indignant. Their blood, that's, that's Greek for their blood, began to boil. They were so angry about this. Can you imagine how hard of a heart you would have to see to see people being healed and children running around and become angry at that? And that's what they're going on. And Jesus replies to them, yes. So he accepts what they're saying as being true about him. He says, have you not read out of the mouths of infants and, ba uh, infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise for yourself? He quotes from Psalm 8.2. We read that this morning. It's interesting that regardless of if it was positive or negative, Jesus interpreted what was going around him biblically, according to Scripture. He always understood that God had a purpose and a plan. He understood the events happening in his life biblically. Every situation, both positive and negative, he interpreted it through the lens of Scripture. And the question for us is, do we understand our life biblically? Do we, things, do we see the things that are happening in our life through a biblical lens, or we just go by our experiences, how we feel that day? We just react. Or do we understand our life biblically? There's some examples of people who did this. You think about Joseph. Joseph had revealed from God that one day he would be exalted and people would be bowing down to him. Uh, but there he was down in a hole, a well. Can you imagine how he felt? And then when his brothers are talking with the guys to sell him into slavery? Or then when he's being accused by Potiphar's wife, and then he's in prison. What did he do? He kept on living according to the revelation he was given. How about the prophet Daniel? Prophet Daniel was in Babylon. Had at his disposal all the king's food, all the king's wine. 
And what did he say? No mama, no daddy. I'm just going to enjoy. Uh-uh. See, he had God's revealed word, so he lived in light of God's revealed word. He lived biblically rather than what he could do. The question is, do we live biblically? Or do we just live on our emotions? Disciples must zealously stand for God's purposes, engage others compassionately, and live biblically. You can't do that if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior. If there's never been a moment where you have realized that you're a sinner on your way to hell, and you've accepted God's free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, put your faith in what he did on the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this narrative. Father, I pray that we can be disciples who are zealously standing for your purposes. Father, I pray that we can, we can engage others compassionately. I pray that we can live biblically. Uh, Father, if there's someone here who's never accepted Christ as their Savior, that today can be the day of salvation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.